You can find me online on Twitter at TurnerESQ. I'm a contributor for The Athletic and Sounder at Heart. And you can find my other writing at SoccerESQ.com. Well, it's been a week in the world of soccer in the United States. Carlos Cordero, the president of the U.S. Soccer Federation, has stepped down in the wake of charged comments in the U.S. soccer filings against the women's national team in their equal pay lawsuit. Taking his place is Cindy Cohn, who will take over as president for the next year until the annual general meetings set for next February 2021 in Atlanta. In the meantime, the Federation has a lot to deal with. Do they try to settle this lawsuit? Do they try to fight it to the end? And what do they do now that they have an election that they have to deal with next year? I called up Kart Krishnar and Neil Blackman, two observers of the men's national team, the women's national team, and the Federation, to talk about all of these issues and how they see things moving forward. It's a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. All right, joining me now, got a couple of great guests. Uh, Neil Blackman, fellow attorney down in the Florida area, and Carter Krishnar, who is not an attorney, but we will not hold that against him, uh, also in Florida, uh, joining me to talk about the uh, you know everything that's going on in U.S. soccer. We had a bit of a meltdown here over the last couple of days, and uh, figured I'd call up a couple of guys who cover cover the sport and the women's and men's and uh, U.S. soccer uh, generally. Uh, guys, thanks for joining me. Great to be Thank with you. you. Well, uh, we had an interesting day yesterday as uh, Carlos Cordero uh, has resigned as the president of the U.S. Soccer Federation. Um, in his place, Sidney uh, Cohn, Sidney uh, Parlo Cohn, who is the vice president who was elected to a full term or the remaining portion of a term that Carlos Cordero used to have, uh, uh, is now the president uh, until the AGM meeting in 2021. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that uh, later on as well. Uh, but I wanted to start with, uh, you know, there's just so much to talk about. But let's let's talk a little bit about what led to his ouster, which is, of course, the uh, women's national team lawsuit that the Federation is defending against, a summary judgment filing. Uh, they had an initial filing about, oh, about three weeks ago where they outlined their positions, both sides, and didn't really raise a lot of hackles, I would say. I mean, some of the same issues were raised in that summary judgment filing. But then uh, a couple of days ago, the parties filed their responses to those respective motions. And that's when the, uh, when it all hit the fan, I guess, for lack of a better word. <laughs> so let's, let's start there. Um, I guess uh, we could talk a little bit about what a summary judgment filing is. This is not a legal uh, show per se, but I think it's important at least to kind of, you know, explain for the audience what a summary judgment filing is. And uh, I guess I'll start with you, Neil, because you're the uh, other attorney here. Just, you know, uh, kind of what that is and uh, what what is it designed to do? So uh, a summary judgment motion essentially asks a court or a judge to uh, direct judgment in favor of, of one party on either the whole case or part of the case. And it happens prior to, to trial. Uh, traditionally in federal court, both parties are allowed to, to move for summary judgment, and if they both do, um, which is what happened in this case, they're asked to do that at the same time. Um, and basically to win, it's, it's unusual to win uh, a summary judgment motion, but traditionally the way that you would win is when a court decides that there's no real fact dispute on like critical facts that needs to be in front of a jury so the court can then apply what are undisputed facts to one legal issue or multiple legal issues. I guess that's the simplest way I can explain it. No, that was a good, that's a good explanation. And obviously leads us into uh, what was specifically in the filings. And 
uh, you know, interestingly, the women's national team filing has gotten no uh, press or coverage whatsoever uh, right. because of what was in the men's national team or in the uh, federation's filing. So, and, you know, we're going to focus on the federation's filing because that's where all the juicy stuff is. <laughs> uh, uh, Kardik, uh, you know, you know, again, you're not an attorney, but you obviously cover this as close as any attorney um, out there. Uh, you know, I just want to get what, what was kind of your reaction um, and what uh, what stuck, uh, you know, what did you kind of pick out from the Federation's filing that that has led to uh, Carlos's ouster? Yeah, so I, I think one of the things that we have to remind uh, the viewers and listeners, Mickey, and you've done such a good job of talking about this over the course of the last now almost three years, right, or maybe more, the number of legal actions the Federation have had to play defense in, right? The, the number of uh, stakeholders, the number of people involved in the sport in this country who have had grievances that were not uh, addressed through the normal grievance process with the Federation or with the U.S. Olympic Committee, uh, which uh, uh, which technically under the Ted Stevens Act governs uh, the, United, uh, the United States Soccer Federation, but have had to go through the U.S. court system, have had to go through uh, the uh, Committee of our, uh, the uh, the CAS uh, uh, filing process uh, for arbitration, uh, filing claims there, and and other legal processes. So uh, U.S. soccer is already playing defense, and I think now they've got a situation where they've hired so many outside counsels playing defense on so many different matters. This is an equality lawsuit. They, they have uh, an antitrust case where they're, they're playing defense, where they're having to, uh, to, to use antitrust attorneys uh, to defend them. They also have a, a firm, Latham, which is of counsel uh, on the outside. They're outside permanently retained outside counsel. And I think there's been some clashes between their permanently retained outside counsel and the outside counsels with the specialties on these different various matters. Uh, there, by the way, there are five or six pending legal actions uh, which have involved U.S. soccer uh, that have been filed in, in the last few years. So I, I don't want to get into all of them. I don't have time for that, right? But yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it's important to note that the strategies that would have been consistent from a PR standpoint and maybe even from a legal standpoint in defending all these lawsuits, because I think what we found, and I don't know how much of this has been reported and how much of it hasn't, but I know from, from my own uh, involvement that there are conversations that go on, privileged conversations uh, within the legal sphere that, that are legal between the different attorneys representing the different plaintiffs, right? So uh, because they're all, they all are suing the same defendant. So that has created a situation where U.S. soccer has different attorneys representing them, outside counsels representing them in some of these cases that are creating different legal strategies, which also create different public relations strategies and makes it look like they're giving, they're, they're contradicting themselves in one case versus another. And I think this is, a, this is an important thing to note. The thing that stood out to me about this whole thing, and I think it's the same thing everyone has picked out of uh, the filings, is the, uh, the fact that they tried to demean the women players, they tried to demean female footballers, in, 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 and to try and cast them as somehow inferior to the male footballers. And then also, um, as offensive to me personally, was that they tried to build the case guys, that somehow it was harder to win in men's soccer, men's football, uh, 
at the international level than in, in, in the women's game, which I think actually, if you put yourself in the position of the U.S. men, and I know maybe Neil and I have had some back and forth on this through the years, it's very easy to coast because they're very mediocre and they have a culture around them which has inoculated them with, with people making excuses constantly and no accountability. So basically, they have it very easy, in my opinion, and the women have created such a level of excellence. They have to win and they have to win constantly and they have to win with style. Even when they were winning um, in a way, many of us who cover the team perceived in the wrong way. A few years ago, we were talking very openly about Jill Ellis being sacked and Laura Harvey coming in, even though the results hadn't really dipped uh, Laura Harvey or whoever, she was the hot name at the time. Yeah. I remember the run up to the 2015 uh, women's world cup. Uh, They started off, Winning, but yeah. not winning particularly stylishly. Um, they gradually grew in and satisfied everyone, but I, d- I do specifically remember some of the. And, and in fact, Mickey, just to finish up on that point, Neil and I uh, had a conversation with another reporter or two in a press box in Orlando at the Citrus Bowl. You probably remember this, Neil. In the middle of that tournament, when we had won our group and we were in the knockout stage, just saying, my gosh, we're playing terribly. This isn't the, the level of soccer we expect from the U.S. women. They're going to get knocked out in the next round. Well, they ended up winning the World Cup, but they have been held to a higher standard consistently than the men. And I think a lot of the excuses that have been made publicly for the men by people who have spun on their behalf then found their way in these legal briefings. And we can talk about that later in the show. But uh, I, I think the, not, the uh, culture of U.S. soccer, which inoculates them from outside critiques, a lot of that ended up in these legal briefings, which to me was just unbelievable. Yeah. And so, Neil, let's talk a little bit about, you know, the legal briefing itself, sure. as Cardick just alluded to. Uh, a lot of what, you know, there's a lot of defenses that the Federation has cited um, um, or uh, what they believe are legitimate bases uh, for winning on summary judgment. And I thought it was interesting that they started off with, you know, as most attorneys do, probably their strongest argument which is on the collective bargaining aspect of, uh, of the deal. And, you know, essentially it boils down to the women bargain for this agreement. Yes, there are different, uh, you know, benefits that they get, but again, those were bargained for. There's no um, allegation that those uh, negotiations were done in bad faith or without disclosure of all the relevant financials. Um, And the women got a, a pay structure that is different from the men because that's what they wanted. And, you know, a deal's a deal, essentially. I think it's what, you know, right. that's the, kind of the bottom line. And that is probably their strongest argument. And they will, you know, there's a good chance that the Federation would win on that argument. But um, as attorneys are wont to do, you include every argument that you think may, uh, you know, may persuade the judge. And there's a point of diminishing returns um, in those arguments at some point. And you get down to kind of the, you know, the last couple of arguments, which are, you know, maybe, you know, you know, not a half-assed necessarily, but you're just not as persuasive. And that's, you know, where I think it's fair to say that the Federation has gotten into trouble here, including some of these arguments about the strength and speed of the women relative to the men. They rely a lot on the depositions, which, you know, argue that the women can't beat the 15-year-old boys and cite that as well. That's, you know, conclusive arguments that these guys aren't doing or women are doing the same work as the men, but you know, just generally, what did you, what did you make of the, uh, the arguments that were, were put into the, uh, into the briefing from the Federation um, just as far as the summary judgment motion and uh, responses are concerned. So I think it's really two conversations. I think 
the first point to make is that the stuff that outraged everyone was in the summary judgment motion. Um, and like you referenced earlier, it kind of got buried. And I mean, you're, you're one of the people, you know, along with, with Stephen bank and, and Grant wall, who, who've kind of covered this story for since 2016, when the EEOC complaint started and done a great job of that. And I don't think they've hit the ball on these arguments, which I think is an important point to remember when we think about this, like, idea that the federation was blindsided by the backlash like this is a legal strategy that they kind of had at least known about for a while um they just hadn't articulated it as forcefully as they did until the memorandum pleading in response and i think when we look at that traditionally especially in federal practice courts judges really like when you narrow your response arguments to your best arguments and that's why I thought it was really odd because I think they had two colorable arguments. One, you mentioned the CBA. The other was linked to the CBA, right? That they bargained for the compensation structure and that also that compensation structure based on at least their revenue math meant that they were paying the women more than the yeah. men. And that even if you subtracted NWSL salaries, oh, by the way, we're still paying you more than the men. Yeah. Um, these are winnable arguments, and I still think they had ways to challenge the second claim. Like these, for people that aren't attorneys, to win this Equal Pay Act claim, the women have to demonstrate two things uh, that there's not equal pay, and that there's not equal pay despite there being substantially similar work. And I think they had arguments to make about different external pressures, different revenue potentials things like that that could have challenged the second claim without making these weird biologically reductive arguments. And to your point, it is diminishing returns. I thought it was bad lawyering because that's not what you do in memorandums in response. Usually you focus on your best arguments. And then I also thought like, if you have to put a disclaimer, this isn't sexist. We promise <laughs> in your memorandum one, it's probably sexist Two, you know, you're risking public backlash. And if you're as good as Safeworth usually is, you have to know that that public backlash could be damaging to your case. And to your point, even if you don't think it's going to be that damaging, there's an opportunity cost in deciding to advance that argument. And it's just, it was just truly baffling to me. And I say this as somebody, like, I don't want to, this isn't toot my own horn moment, but I've tried two of these cases to verdict. Like now people are like, oh, two cases. Well, that's actually kind of a lot. Yeah, the cases don't go to trial, generally speaking. Right. So I've tried two employment discrimination cases to verdict, and what I'll say is I just don't understand why you'd go for these bad arguments in your memorandum in response when you really have a decent chance of of prevailing on one of them, even at the summary judgment stage. Just go all in on that arg argument. It, it was odd to me. Um, and so that was strange. And it's also strange. It's strange for two reasons, not just the public backlash, but I think we've also mentioned that it's just not that legally a strong argument. I mean, they, they go to great lengths to talk about how the plaintiffs don't cite many cases that, you know, demonstrate equal work or to distinguish the cases the plaintiffs cite. But there's not a case that they cite that just stands for the proposition that pure biological difference justifies equal rate, unequal rates of pay or proves that 
there's different levels of skill required. Like they don't have any case law to support that argument either. So what are you making it for? Yeah. I mean, and I want to talk about the backlash because that's a perfect way to kind of move on to, to what happened in the aftermath of, of these filings. Yeah. Yeah. Those are, you know, as you raise those, those arguments, you know, there's not a lot of legal support for those arguments. And if there's not legal support, then why are you making those arguments right. um, when you know the backlash is coming? So let's talk about the backlash. Uh, you know, as shortly after these were filed, the women's national team, you know, started, you know, making comments, uh, their, their uh, legal spokeswoman, uh, Molly Levinson, who I've talked to on an occasion, um, who can definitely, uh, you know, spar with the best of them, came out with some comments basically saying she's ready for trial on, on May 5th, uh, which is, you know, right now the date of trial, assuming this gets to trial. Again, we could talk about that and whether that's likely later. Um, and then there was, a, you know, a substantial media response, a corporate response, and then the board started coming out with their comments. And Cardick, uh, you know, this this was probably predictable based on uh, what was in those filings and you know how the parties had been sparring previous to this, but uh, were you surprised by the level of backlash um, and that it was was essentially effective in 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 Cordero resigning? I was I was uh, actually stunned that it came together so quickly that it coalesced so quickly. We're in the middle of the She Believes Cup competition, and by the time the U.S. played Japan in, in Dallas or outside of Dallas on uh, Wednesday night all these factors were already in play. Coca-Cola, who has a history, and I mentioned this on the World Soccer Talk podcast this week, has a history in equality-type settings of forcing the issue. And the, the, the uh, uh, case, I, it's not a case, the, uh, the, the, the point I reference is 1964 when Martin Luther King won the Nobel Peace Prize. He comes back home to Atlanta. There's obviously lots of hostility in the segregated South. The city of Atlanta has no plan to honor uh, their most famous son, and Coca-Cola, based in Atlanta, founded in Atlanta, uh, threatens the city and basically says, we can move our headquarters to New York or Chicago or, or yeah. somewhere else, uh, unless you honor them. <laughs> and the city of Atlanta, Ivan Allen, the mayor, uh, relented and had this huge gala for Martin Luther King. So they have so much influence, and they've had a track record of pushing on these issues. So Coke didn't surprise me. Visa and Volkswagen, and Volkswagen has had a horrible public relations mess to clean up the last few years, uh, obviously with, with uh, diesel engines and emissions and, and that scandal. But those two corporate partners really surprised me, and I'm heartened by the fact that they saw the public pressure building and they saw that the Federation was tone deaf and had essentially lost its constituency. Yeah. Well, the media reaction did not surprise me, but I thought the media reaction would be something that would not push sponsors to react. So I think when you have uh, the, the, the level of media reaction we had, we've seen this before with U.S. soccer, with their filings in various lawsuits, with their conduct after the U.S. men uh, got eliminated and, and missed their first World Cup in, in over 30 years, and, and uh, other various things that have happened in the soccer landscape, but the media will build up to, to a boiling point, and then it'll just um, flatline and go away. It'll be a couple of days of it. So it actually surprised me that the media reaction, uh, particularly you mentioned Grant Wall earlier, I think particularly Grant Wall's commentary and Grant Wall's uh, article um, in Sports Illustrated pushed the sponsors to act. And then the reaction from the USSF board members uh, surprised me as well, although 
I think when we get into the dynamics of the organization, we may talk about legal exposure and culpability with those board members as well. Uh, but maybe, again, they feel like, uh, even from a, a public relations standpoint, they, 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 they preserve themselves a little bit if they, if they, they push now. Um, and then I think another influential uh, uh, influencer in this whole thing, and, and Neil, you can speak to this, was Heather O'Reilly, who yeah. has been kind of seen as uh, – the, 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 and she spent the summer, this past summer on Fox, on television during the Women's World Cup, so her profile's been raised. But, uh, Heyo had been seen kind of as one of the driving forces in the Athletes Council's decision to support Carlos Cordero for president in 2018, uh, based on guarantees that, uh, that he did not, uh, agree with the previous, uh, yeah conduct of the federation and the EOC complaint and all of that and nothing had changed so I think Heo coming out and saying the things she said had a lot more influence than some of the other former players that did and uh that uh just triggered all of this backlash that that forced Cordero out yeah and uh, Neil uh, I'll get your comments in a second but you know someone told me that there are very few media members that the federation would would look at and say, all right, maybe something's going on here. And Grant Wall is certainly one of them. And he came out with a commentary, you know, basically saying Cordero had to go. And with that, along with the corporate response, I think that spurred the board into their response. Again, we can talk about whether the board, you know, how much the board knew about this strategy in the first place um, and who was kind of an on on board with that strategy um, as far as these filings were concerned, because someone had to okay this and I'm not, ex- you know, no one's expecting their client to review 2,600 uh, pages worth of documents or sign off on a summary judgment motion. That's ridiculous. Uh, no one would do that, but they're aware of the strategy and, and at least some of them, you know, had to have signed off on that. So that's going to be an interesting story, but you know, just generally, Neil, uh, what, what did you think of the backlash and were you surprised that it, 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 you know, it culminated in his ouster within basically 36, you know, the 48 hours. Yeah, I think it was the rate and speed of the backlash, especially given that there was this larger coronavirus story that normally would have provided some cover, right? Uh, you'd think, and it still was that, that quick. Um, I do think that, you know, and it's a point that Meg Linen made, it's a point I made. Uh, we obviously don't have the influence that, that Grant has, yeah. but that this happened during the She Believes Cup, which theoretically is a celebration that U.S. soccer throws about the accomplishments of women and to encourage women to, and this is U.S. soccer's language, um, to excel and chase their dreams in athletics or otherwise uh, is – you know, that, that kind of magnified just how ridiculous uh, ratifying this language is. So I think, you know, there is that. And then there's certainly just the common sense perception that, to your point, you know, yeah, I don't think that they thought, yeah, I mean, I doubt U.S. soccer had anyone that went through 2,600 pages on their board uh, or, you know, there were a lot of exhibits for a summary judgment motion. Yeah, Goodness gracious. I'd never seen that many, but. What I can tell you is that at SafeArts, probably somebody wrote an eight to 10 page mem- memo or letter to the client. Here's our arguments. Uh, we're going to file this. You need to know what they are. I'm sure Carlos Cordero gets CC'd on that because he's the head honcho client. 
they read it. Like you said, uh, you know, they've conducted these depositions. So it taxes credulity a little bit to think that they just knew nothing of it and were wholly blindsided. And I think that was kind of what we saw when once people read what Grant had to say, once people saw what Hayo said, Demarcus Beasley, I thought, was another person who gave a pretty commanding statement and commands a lot of respect at U.S. soccer, especially with some of the new people that I brought in that, that really like DeMarcus, like Brian McBride and people that are in the room in that regard. So I think, um, you know, yeah. And then, you know, the Cindy Cohn statement was made and that kind of was, that tipped you off that something was going to go down, right? When, when the person that would be in charge, if Cordero isn't, it's a statement <laughs> announcing what Cordero says. It felt like it was a problem. We saw Paul Kennedy, who knows lots of stuff, say yesterday afternoon, oh, man, Cordero's a lame duck now. And, you know, I think in their rush to react, that's what happened. But, yeah, the, the short answer to your question is the scale and pace of it was pretty astonishing. Yeah, and it and also speaks – lastly, it certainly speaks to – something that doesn't get admitted very much, but we all should know by now that this is the most beloved sports team or soccer team in the country. And you better not mess with them. Yeah. And, and you've got to, uh, part of, go ahead. Yeah, no, that's, that, that's it, Neil. I mean, I think when it comes back down to it, I think there is a lack of recognition among the powers that be at U.S. soccer and the lawyers, and the lawyers are not, P, are not PR people. They're not meant to, to, to shape a communication strategy, but I think there is a, a lack of understanding or acknowledgement of how beloved uh, these, these women are, not only among soccer fans, but among general sports fans. They're, they're the only uh, American-based soccer team that's ever cut through to people who, who, who generally just watch American football and basketball or whatever else, and then in society as a whole. So a uh, wrong group to pick on, and Megan Rapino has a much bigger soapbox. Megan. Yeah, Megan has a much bigger soapbox than anyone else connected with the sport in this country. So uh, – I, I think that the, the, the powers that be at U.S. soccer seem to forget that once again, and they forget it regularly. So great point. Well, and it's, it's not just Megan, because what's interesting about Megan is, right, there, there are people that still like the team that don't agree with Megan. And that True. is yeah, yeah. too. So you, you have players like Carly or Becky Sauerbrunn that those fans embrace that also have Carly in particular has a pretty big platform, uh, Alex Morgan you know, a global icon, more or less. So when they say something and they're named plaintiffs, I mean, yeah, I mean, you just can't – it's not somebody you really want to mess with, I guess. Yeah, I actually had someone – This is that's great. Uh, uh, great point, Neil, and this is all anecdotal evidence, right, guys? But I had someone who is a political friend of mine who's involved in, in, in Democratic Party politics and I've worked with in, in politics tell me I, – I, I, I didn't really take – Many, many of them seriously, but I love Kelly O'Hara because I just love her attitude and, she, right. and, and the things she says. So when O'Hara was grilled in her deposition, uh, that's when this person came to me and said, oh, my goodness, what are you going to do about U.S. soccer since you're a soccer person? So I guess they all have their own little followings. Yeah. Yeah, they just – I think the Federation has severely underestimated, again, how beloved they are and how powerful they are. Um, Megan Rapino is a world superstar at this point and, and carries a massive voice and uh, far exceeding that of any of the men's national team, even if they weren't 
as, uh, you know, if they weren't struggling as much as they were to have on-field results or to have any relevance. And they've just, they've just completely, I think, underestimated, uh, you know, their, their relevance and influence. And it, you know, based on what we saw at the She Believes Cup with them coming out with, uh, you know, with the jerseys on backwards and, and you know, t-shirts are being sold now with that, with that as well. They're, they're a savvy group and they're a smart group and a powerful group. And you, know, you mess with them at uh, your own peril. And the Federation, I think is learning, learning. That. Oh, I, I think another, you, you mentioned about a smart group uh, in, in football and soccer, we're accustomed to dealing with a lot of players uh, in the men's game who uh, maybe didn't even finish high school, but that uh, were, grew up in England or Germany or wherever and were fast-tracked into a pro team by the time they were 16 or 17. And uh, here in the U.S. now, more and more uh, uh, guys that are going to academies, they're, they're doing kind of high school learning and getting diplomas, but they're not really educated. What you have with the women's national team are a lot of college-educated, smart women. So they also know how to market themselves. They also know their role in society and how they can, they are torchbearers for a cause and they exploit that brilliantly. And I think once again, you have people at the top of the game in this country who don't understand the social context of all this, right? They're very myopic. They're very much in their tunnel vision. And uh, that has come back to bite them once again. Yeah, and this so this is actually probably a good point to move on to uh, who is now in charge of the U.S. Soccer Federation, uh, Cindy uh, Cindy Parlocombe, who was uh, appointed when Carlos uh, you know left his post to assume the presidency, and then she ran for uh, the remainder of the term, and so she now steps into a situation uh, where she is going mm-hmm. to have to try to repair the relationship between the federation and the women's national team. Um, the women, you know, obviously, as this equal pay lawsuit has gone on, there's been lots of uh, little controversies, or at least lesser than what happened with the summary judgment motion. Uh, you know, my my thought was that you know this relationship and why Cordell had to go is because they had essentially napalmed or firebombed any chance <laughs> of repairing um, any bridges. You know, burned bridges. Uh, you know, I think is is an understatement here. So she steps in. Uh, she uh, came uh, from the NWSL too. So I'm, I just wanted to to get your thoughts on, you know, what the job in front of her, uh, how, and if it's possible that she repairs a relationship with the women's national team. um, And is that even beyond her, her abilities at this point, given uh, the construction of the board and, you know, just kind of where things uh, move from here. Well, I think Cardick kind of pointed out this earlier, but it's a point that, that some of us have made, I think you included Mickey, that this is a, a cultural thing, this kind of delegitimization or the refusal to recognize women as, as equals. I think Grant called it a culture of misogyny. And I mean, I think there's a, there's an argument to be made there. And certainly Cindy is somebody that played for the USWNT now has this huge challenge ahead, but maybe that portion of her identity gives her a chance to sort of bridge that gap where somebody else wouldn't have that opportunity. Um, you know, with Latham, there's not real cons- – like sometimes they keep litigating and sometimes they use them to settle. It'll be interesting to see which pathway they take. We talked about, you know, the cost-benefit analysis that they clearly didn't conduct in filing this pleading. You know, how damaging is that to their ultimate chances in litigation? It's hard to say there because, like, again, they still have 
one aspect of the story that's not getting covered much is that U.S. soccer has a big decision to make. They probably should consider a settlement because of public opinion. Yeah. And they need to dam- They need to do that damage control, and a settlement would do a lot to do that. On the other hand, um, something you've pointed out, not many other writers have pointed out, that the Federation could win, that they have a viable argument that yeah. they could win on. It's not something that's being covered in the media because there's this urgency to cover the public opinion side of the story, right? Which is what's the right thing to do with versus what's the law about the equal pay act say. And so I think that's kind of a difficult area to navigate, but the bottom line is Cordero's resignation is something that was warranted in my opinion, based on what happened, but it doesn't solve anything. Like what happens now is what's really important. And, you know, is Cindy the right person for that? In the short term, that's probably true. I'm sure Cardick wants to talk about what happens after Sydney, and, and that's a great question. Yeah, just before you uh, jump in, Cardick, just to note that the sources I've talked to said that the Federation, assuming that you agreed, uh, assuming that they thought the court would agree with the women's national team argument, uh, at least generally speaking, thought that the damages were in the range of about 10 to $15 million dollars to cover whatever back pay, uh, uh, what, and yeah. And, uh, uh, Neil is shaking his head. They would be lucky to get, um, away with double that now. Yeah. yeah. Let's also note that the women, you know, essentially are asking for over $60 million or think that $60 million is around the, the damages, uh, if they were to prevail, you know, punitive damages, all that kind of stuff. So, uh, with that in mind, yeah, part to go ahead and, and what you think Cindy, uh, the task she's got ahead of her. Well, well, first off, Mickey, I think you've been better than anyone in reporting the dwindling surpluses at U.S. soccer and, and what uh, they are looking for in term, or what we're looking at in terms of cash on hand for, for the organization going forward. And uh, these legal cases have taken a big bite out of what was at one point $150 million surplus that they were sitting on. And uh, the, the book of reports uh, from this most recent AGM, which concluded four weeks ago, I think we've all gone through, and, and seeing uh, also the, the mounting legal fees and potentially the damages. So yeah. you just talked right. about the damages in this case. Uh, you and I both talked to people, and I think Neil does as well, uh, associated with the NASL lawsuit. And in full disclosure, I did work uh, for the NASL as their director of communications for several years, just so people know that. And don't think I'm, uh, uh, I, I have a conflict of interest here anymore. I do not obviously work for them any longer. But they, um, they're very confident that they're going to, because uh, initially they didn't file for damages, and then eventually uh, they uh, began seeking damages after the league was essentially driven out of business. And uh, they're pretty confident they're going to get some sort of monetary compensation as well. So we're looking at a situation where U.S. soccer surplus could completely disappear. Um, now, transitioning to the, the, the politics of this internally, and U.S. soccer is an incredibly political organization like any large nonprofit is. It's, it's no different than the other large nonprofits in this country that uh, generate the kind of revenue they did. We just talked about $150 million surplus at one point. I, I think what is of great concern to people I speak to and I've spoken to in the last 24 hours is one, the, the, the feeling that Cordero um, was not, was, was scapegoated by the rest of the board who was at least in some regards complicit with uh, this direction and the, and the decisions made around first the EOC complaint when, which was filed when Cordero, by the way, was the vice president of the organization and not the president of the organization uh, and was a, uh, and there were independent board members, including, um, 
a member of Congress now, uh, Donna Shalala from here in, in Miami, uh-huh. uh, who, who was on the board at the time, uh, and uh, Val Ackerman, who's been in the news the last few days, as well as uh, Congresswoman Shalala. She's been in the news because of coronavirus and her experience with HHS and the Clinton administration. But Val Ackerman, who uh, uh, was the commissioner of the Big East and, and, and NCAA in, in, in the uh, midst of all this, uh, all these cancellations. Uh, so there's some potential culpability with all these people. Uh, and that Cordero has been scapegoated for it is the concern. The other concern I hear is that there were potentially, and again, a lot of this is conjecture, so I'm just throwing this out there. I don't know if it's true or not, that Cordero was beginning to pivot in the last three months to a more kind of reformist pose. Dan Flynn had uh, left, uh, the long-time ter- long secretary general of the organization, which serves as kind of the executive director, if, if you want to put it in layman's terms. Walter. The COO that actually pulled the strings on the organization for the last several years, particularly the last few years when Sunil Gulati ran uh, U.S. Soccer and was the president, he is on. It, it was in the process of leaving, and that Cordero actually had a reform-minded agenda that he was going to begin to implement once he got his own staff, uh, which included potentially the promises he had made to Heather O'Reilly uh, when he got her vote, when he got uh, support of the Athletes Council. And that by uh, pushing Cordero out of the way, it may be back to business as usual. Now, that is the speculation of some people. I don't know if that is absolutely positively what's going to happen. Um, another development that we weren't aware of until last night was that Neil was reported by Neil Morris, our friend uh, from uh, the Triangle area, Raleigh Durham area in, in North Carolina, also an attorney. Uh, he reported that Steve Malik, the owner of North Carolina FC, the yeah. former employer of Cindy Cohn, was put back on the board without us noticing uh, in the last few weeks because at the AGM uh, four weeks ago in Nashville, you still had uh, Alec Papadakis, the president of USL, our second division, or, uh, which represents our second, third, and, and one of our fourth divisions, in um on the board, and that Papadakis, who I know, um, and I've reported before, has had a number of clashes with uh, people like Don Garber on that board, uh, uh, was eased out and replaced by Malik, who apparently is more uh, conformance-minded with uh, the other members of the board. So a lot of things going on, a lot of moving parts. It's not as simple as Cordero was uh, uh, responsible for the strategy, he's out, we're moving on. I think there's a, a lot more concerns and questions coming out of even the way it went about happening yeah i would just quickly note that uh as of last night i was checking the uh the website um regarding the board of directors and papadakis is still listed as a member of the board so if that announcement or if that move has been made it's not it's not been announced nor has it been uh updated on the federation (laughs) website so um that they should probably answer that question (laughs) right right they have a very reputable reporter who would know okay i i trust neil more than i trust the ussf website i i I hate to say that but that's the reality so let's talk a little bit about the board uh generally Uh, as as uh cardic you noted that uh some backlash has started to come about uh on the board specifically because they're the ones that make all the decisions uh regarding uh, you know, you know, kind of personnel decisions, uh, you know, anything that isn't covered by the votes uh, that come uh, through the AGM. So, uh, number one, do you see there's been some calls as well to kind of reform the board, whether that means, uh, you know, a regal organization. I think Heather O'Reilly called for that. I think Grant Walls called for that. You know, you know that some of that 
is is stuff that would be handled at the AGM. But just generally speaking, do, do you see this as a you know a potential that we could see a new a new board installed uh, given some of these issues, or or is it more likely as Carter kind of intimated that this kind of goes back to business as usual, usual, especially with if it's true Malik being uh, you know reinstalled a, a, as part of the board. Well, I mean, I think I think one thing the the outcome of this litigation could shape what happens with Sid with Cindy in particular. You know, I mean, I think if there's a settlement and then there's some sort of public opinion that the right thing was done, then maybe that protects her in the subsequent election. And then, however, she envisions the board, whether it's to protect current members that had a say or influence in this legal strategy. Um, or we're aware of it, um, you know, she could choose to do that or she could choose to do uh, reformist things. I'm skeptical of the claim that Carlos Cordero was about to usher in a new wave of reforms. I think, <laughs> we, I think we litigated that pretty well in the last, uh, in the last U.S. soccer election and the Athletes Council uh, chose the status quo, you know. And yeah. I think it, it was interesting that, you know, regardless of whether they did that because certain promises were made, those promises weren't kept, as Heo said, um, as Pope Solo pointed out a little more aggressively. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think, I think some of those questions need to be answered. But, but, I mean, what's – the real question is you've got your best employees. If you're U.S. soccer, your relationship with your best employees is now deteriorated to the point where – they're wearing their shirts backwards so that you can't see the crest and there are four stars and they're, they're basically only playing the Olympics because they don't have real legal grounds to strike. Yes. And because yeah. they're competitive, right. They're just competitors. So they want to go. Um, if that's the situation with you and your best employees, then I don't know if you can go back to business as usual. Um, and I think if there's ever been like, that's the question I have for Mickey. Like, have you ever seen such a repudiation of business as usual as we've seen in the last 48 hours? Because that's the question that U.S. soccer has to grapple with. Because uh, point, we don't see that with Visa or, or Deloitte, right? Like, Nike's going to make a really woke commercial that makes us forget that they haven't said shit. But, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, business as usual has kind of been rejected. Yeah, uh, I, I suppose the last example would be the 2016 election, but we will stay away from the uh, the politics uh, <laughs> too much here. Um, but yeah, I think I think you're right. Uh, it, it seems to be it seems like we've kind of passed uh, the Rubicon here, uh, but there are protections in place for the status yeah. quo, um, and it's it's going to be difficult for a reformer, quote unquote to take over if it, if it comes to that and we're at the 2021 AGM and there are a bunch of candidates uh, running for president, uh, there are still, uh, you know, the pro council still has a massive uh, influence on the vote. They get 25%. But um, I think Charlie Bone pointed out to me when I was, after I was uh, tweeting that the, the pro council only has uh, what, 12 or 15 members on it, which allows right. them to vote as a block as opposed to the pro and youth uh, councils or not the pro council, but the youth and uh, other councils uh, that have 300 you know, delegates out there. And it's just difficult to wrangle all of those guys and gals up to vote in a particular way. So uh, Carter, I'm curious what you think, uh, you know, as we kind of lead into the 2021 AGM where we're going to have a new election for yep. 
president to finish up uh, Cordero's term, uh, you know, it, you know, the status quo may end up happening again just because, you know, groups can't get their uh, acts together, for lack of a better term, to 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 institute someone who would reform. Yeah, can I, 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 can I interject really quick? Go, go ahead, Neil. Like a, let me let me just ask a beast up point because I'm interested in Cardic. This is a Cardic question. Yeah. <laughs> Gulati is now gone because Cordero resigned, so technically Gulati's seat on the board is over under yeah. the rules. Correct. Yeah. What it's if, Cordero's seat now? I I want to know what the impact to that is, Cardic. What you think the impact of that is? Because Gulati still had a lot of sway. Yes. Yeah, and, and I think that that is part of, when I mentioned earlier, Cordero might have had a reform agenda that he was going to put in place in the, in the coming months with Burhalter and Flynn gone. It, it leads directly back to Sunil Gulati. Sunil Gulati still had the ear of uh, those two men, and, and it, there have been various rumors over the course of the last year, about a uh, year, year and a half, about the Gulati-Cordero relationship completely uh, collapsing to the point where they weren't even speaking. Now, whether that's true or not, obviously they would have to speak at board meetings. But beyond that, whether there was any sort of uh, 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 a relationship there, Gulati still has the ear of Don Garber, we know that, who is still on the board, and of some of the other bo- uh, board members that have been appointed, and has a term he is serving out on the FIFA Executive Committee. However, um, as we approach the 2026 World Cup, uh, there is thought that he might fade as, as a force, and that he might uh, uh, be in the background. I, I should mention, specifically the 2026 World Cup, Dan Flynn is still going to be heavily involved in, in, the, uh, uh, in, in the organization of that, as well as he is with the St. Louis MLS team that's coming online uh, very, very shortly here. Next season, they'll start playing. So uh, I think there are all these moving parts still uh, that Galati controls. Now, are they transitioning out? In some cases, yes. In others, they're not. He won't be on the board himself anymore, but he still has a lot of sway in that boardroom. He still has a lot of influence. Now, the question is, does Cindy Cohn have the kind of independence in her that she's going to be able to push back on his influence? His influence may be from outside the boardroom now, but it will still be there. Uh, so also, when you mentioned, getting back to your question, Mickey, about the actual politics and, and opposition groups coalescing and getting behind the candidate, it's very similar to what we've seen in the Democratic primaries. I mean, in fact, Neil knows this. I made the observation after the 2018 AGM that uh, the fighting factions reminded me of progressive groups because I come from that world of, of progressive Democratic Party politics. And uh, we had four candidates that were thought of as reform candidates, four or mm-hmm. five candidates. Uh, in, when you talk about Steve Gantz, Mike Vinograd, uh, Hope Solo, Kyle Martino, Eric Winalda. I might be forgetting. Oh, and Paul Calagiri was running too. So yeah, six candidates that were probably genuine reformers. Uh, there was no ability to coalesce the individual supporters of those candidates. A lot of it was based on personality, and a lot of it was based on, again, tactics. And some people said, we need to burn the house down now. There were other people with much more pragmatic approaches, uh, and there were people like uh, Vinograd and Gans who were genuine reformers but also understood the internal dynamics of the organization uh, from a legal perspective and that uh, certain things legally were not possible and that you had to be uh, much more incremental in your approach. So because the opposition wasn't able to coalesce, Cordero got in. Um, 
now I think we're in a similar position because the opposition, if anything, seems more fragmented than ever, uh, turning on each other very, very, uh, you know, you, they're, they're, they're ideological purity tests. And again, it may sound like I'm describing the Democratic primaries in a way I am, but there is all of that. So I think, again, it's going to be difficult for 2021 for those groups to coalesce. But I would say if they do at some point coalesce, they probably represent a majority of stakeholders in the game in this country. But um, again, caution that, and, and we haven't talked about this yet, but I was, so I shouldn't say again, but caution that the, the way the votes are weighted and structured within the, uh, the, the USSF gives a lot of power to the Athletes Council that we've talked about earlier and gives a lot of power to youth soccer. And a lot of youth soccer people are outside of these daily debates we're having about promotion and relegation and, and women's equality and, and uh, uh, training compensation and, and, and uh, solidarity payments. Or, or because of that issue and their pay-to-play academies, they want to keep the status quo. So um, while I think the majority of stakeholders, people I would say are actual stakeholders in the sport, people are actually uh, intimately involved in the sport at kind of a macro level, uh, want some sort of change, I think there's a lot of inertia internally including, unfortunately, the youth soccer space where their safest play is always to go with the status quo. Last thing I'll say here is, and, uh, and I, I, I appreciate some of our colleagues, like the very next morning, uh, people like Charles Bohm and Jonathan Hannonwall gave me credit, uh, when the night before the election, um, in, in, and the election took place in Orlando in 2018, so a little bit of home field advantage for my backyard, but I, I really detected youth soccer was scared, was the, the, the people from youth soccer who had come to the AGM suddenly became very threatened by the rhetoric they heard from Kyle Martino yeah. and from uh, yeah. Eric Winalda. And uh, those two candidates in particular. And then Hope Solo went crazy the next morning. But uh, those two. And I sensed that night they were coalescing behind Cordero and they were scared of change. And that they saw this Cordero-Carter split as a problem. So they, most youth soccer leaders that weren't under the direct influence of MLS ended up going with Cordero on the very first ballot the next morning. And that shifted the election even uh, as much as the athletes council did. So um, I think we have to be cognizant of that. The rhetoric you hear from a lot of the reformers threatens people in youth soccer who are in their little corner of the world. They don't have these macro thoughts like we do, or like most stakeholders do. And they're just trying to keep, protect their own little uh, kingdom wherever they are. And they were, they in mass moved to Cordero. I, I saw it Friday with my own eyes and reported on it and the next morning when the election happened, people like Bohm were giving me credit for being the first to see that. Um, I think uh, going forward, that's, that's a real challenge because the bylaws are the bylaws and they still represent a big chunk of the electorate. Yeah, just to uh, jump, uh, jump in before I toss it over to Neil. Uh, so, you know, currently the, there's, you know, four councils essentially that have votes, uh, you know, for the election. you got the Youth Council, which you just referred to, Cardiff. you got the Adult Council, the Pro Council, which is MLS and, um, and those, and those uh, groups. And then the Athletes Council, uh, Heather Riley and, and, and others. Uh, they all, their votes are weighted, um, which is why it's difficult to kind of overcome the, uh, the Pro Council, which has 16 delegates, but they, they're, again, their votes are weighted. So those 16 people, if they vote as a block, still represent a large chunk of the voting delegates. Um, and so it's just difficult for the youth council with thir- 313 delegates to come together as a block 
unless they're, as Cardick mentioned, scared of one of the potential candidates, which, you know, lines up with what I was seeing, um, even though falling from afar. Um, And so as we come into the 2021, and we can kind of finish up talking about kind of a look forward about how we see things going. uh, And Neil, I just want to get your thoughts on um, if it's actually truly possible that you get a reformer in there, or is it going to come down to a couple of, uh, you know, loud voices that scare off the youth, youth council or is there a Barack Obama like figure that will be palatable <laughs> to uh, to that group um, and make it possible for at least a quasi reformer uh, to come in there and unseat Cone assuming you don't think she's the one to do it yeah I, I mean look I think I, I still think that there needs to be time to figure out if she's the person who can can manage that especially because of her USWNT background. And, and I think that that the relationship she has with the best employees that the organization has is important. And, and, you know, what would her leader, what will her leadership look like is an important question. But I do think while I, I understand the structural limits and, and points that Cardig makes, but I think there is room for a reformer, maybe with, with an element of like pragmatic leadership, right? Like this idea that, and maybe it's somebody that ran the last time that just comes and says, see, I told you so. <laughs> and uh, by the way, here are the things that – here's the reasons you shouldn't have been scared of me initially, right? And like oh, when I think of who the more reasoned voices in that discussion are, you know, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it's Eric Winalda. I don't know if it's Kyle Martino. I don't know, you know, if it's Mike Vinograd, if he's still interested in, in – in any of this, you know, he's, he's one of the ones that's kind of gone dark. Yeah. But, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I think if there's ever space for it, my guess is that, that it comes now. Um, and, you know, I do think, but I do think that the outcome of, of this litigation in yes, particular. Yeah, I just about to raise that. Yeah, I, I think it matters. I think it matters in, as a first step in determining, okay, what's U.S. soccer want to be, um, you know, and, and what direction uh, are they going to take the sport in the country? And, and I think this, this lawsuit now suddenly has kind of gotten thrust to the forefront of that conversation, if it wasn't there already. Yeah, and so, you know, I, Neil, you and I were talking a little bit about how, how much more likely this, uh, this causes a settlement to happen. Um, and I think, right. I, I think it's fair to say neither of us expects this case to go to trial now. Oh. Uh, yeah, number one, because of the new, the new firm uh, that's been brought in Latham Watkins, uh, you know, they're probably inclined to be, they're probably inclined to be in more in cleanup mode than fighting mode. Um, yeah. and, so, and, and also they're there, I should, sorry to jump in, but they're also what? of counsel to the USSF in general, and they've been involved with Major League Soccer and the USSF. They probably have a better sense than the previous uh, lawyers handling this of the PR disaster and of kind of the soccer space. So I think they're going to work as a law firm to settle and clean it up. But Mickey, as you said, and I'm and continue, you, you said earlier, damages might be doubled now. What well, they anticipated, it might be triple. I mean, so they're, they're, they're not exactly inheriting a, a good deck of cards. Yeah, and like I said, uh, you know, my previous uh, uh, talks with U.S. Soccer, they pegged it at around $15 million. We'll go with the rounding up there. Uh, the women's national team is around $65 million. There's obviously room uh, to meet in between those, uh, those marks. 
um, those uh, those markers. But maybe the women's national team decides to press their advantage, um, and and you know this thing could get into you know the seventy million dollar range. And there is a point at which the federation can't afford to pay that. Um, you right. know, even if you decide, even if you think that they're uh, they're currently at one hundred fifty million dollars surplus, which they're not at anymore. Um, they had planned to spend that down in the lead up to the World Cup to um, for investments uh, to drop it down to around forty million dollars, and you know there is there is a number that could do lasting damage. Now I'm not sure that's the concern of the women's national team, but a negotiation there's there's a point where the federation I think decides that look we've got to get out from under this lawsuit because if they don't and it goes to trial. Um, and things get blown up and, you know, there's probably going to, uh, after a verdict, there's probably going to be an appeal. And, uh, I, I just don't think the Federation at this point can, can, can stand another two years of litigation because if that happens, then you probably are going to see some massive, uh, you know, reforms put into place that they don't want, um, at the AGM and the youth council probably yeah, at some point says, look, we've had enough We're we're, we need to clean out this board. And that is something that is going to incentivize them to settle, I think. All right. Yeah. Go ahead, Carl. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think, I think they are incentivized to settle at this point, and I think they have to settle. I don't think this is going to go to trial now. And I thought that regardless of whether Cordero resigned and whether there was sponsored pressure after uh, what we saw in, in the legal filings came out earlier in the week, because I do think within the soccer space itself – Reporters like Grant Wall, who we've mentioned many times today, and, and others, and, and, and everyone we work with and know, the, the pressure was going to be enormous internally within just kind of the U.S. soccer uh, space, you know, the, the very kind of niche space that we, we work in. Uh, but then to get the external pressure now from sponsors, to get the resignation of Cordero, and to, to turn on the BBC, I, I watch BBC World much of the day, it's on behind me, but BBC World News, and the first non-coronavirus story anywhere in the world they cover is this, <laughs> is, is first Megan Rapinoe's comments yesterday, and then today Cordero's rec- uh, resignation tells you this the impact in society and again goes back to the whole discussion we had about the u.s women and how important they are as torchbearers in this society not only in the united states but globally at least in western cultures there's a lot of attention on on their fight and uh, on their excellence coming out of the 2019 fifa women's world cup so uh, I, I think what this means is u.s soccer has to settle they will settle the big question is uh, as you raised, Mickey, do damages now double or triple w- over what was anticipated because of the uh, the damage now to individual reputations and to uh, uh, to 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 earning potential, all of that stuff that came out of those uh, depositions? Well, I think we need to. I think we need to address the possibility, albeit not great, but not not well covered by U.S. media that U.S. soccer could win their summary judgment argument on on the revenue question that yeah. we pay you more. Um, yeah. And, and so, I, yeah, I think that is possible actually, Neil, you're right. And I don't think that there will be any settlement until they're told they lost that argument. Um, because it's a, I think it's a, it's a certainly a colorable argument, even at the summary yeah. judge stage. Now, judge Costner has rejected, um, sort of the he's basically the tea leaves suggest that he thinks that there's at least a fact dispute there that he would send to a jury okay right? yeah, I, that makes sense mickey, do you agree with that mickey I, yeah. I, but but i think 
but I still think it's possible that, you know, now he says, well, and you could tell in the U.S. women's response that the argument they were most scared of was that argument because some of their weakest responses were in response to U.S. experts on that revenue question. They called their calculations junk science and, you know, kind of ignored the fact that they weren't arguing that that discriminatory compensation was okay. They were just saying, Hey, look, it's a different compensation structure and there's an insurance value to, to the guaranteed compensation that we offer you. Yeah, absolutely. That, that, yeah. And that, that value, uh, whether it's maternity leave, whether it's the guaranteed based, that those things, that sort of different compensation structure isn't, isn't unequal pay. It's just a different type of pay. And if Klausner embraces that argument and grants summary judgment, the public's going to be mad, but then it's the women that have to appeal. Yeah. The flip side is if they lose, yeah, I don't think they're going to trial because the other point on a, on an appeal is uh, in a federal appeal, you're even less likely to win in a, than in a state appeal. Yeah. And a federal appeal with the lawyers that they're paying right now is just more money that they don't want to spend out of the surplus, uh, especially with all the other litigation they have to go on. But, but we as a U.S. media need to cover the possibility that U.S. soccer wins a little better. Yeah, and that's an yeah. point. Yeah, and actually, I'm glad you brought that up, Neil, because I think maybe my observation was partly reacting to the last few days. I have read a lot of uh, another journalist that we all know, Bo Doris, uh kind of summaries of this stuff uh, as uh, this has moved on in 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 uh, Soccer America, and, and unfortunately, that's behind a paywall. So I'm not sure a lot of people see uh, his writing, like the Athletic, like what you do, Mickey, and what you've done for the Athletic. Neil is behind a paywall, unfortunately. Um, that's just the reality of our business now. But um, <laughs> Bo has talked a lot about that specific argument uh, related to um, and, and thinking that U.S. soccer would had a very good chance of winning on that argument, even though they were going to lose the PR battle and ultimately lose on any number of other fronts that that argument uh, until it was played out, you could not definitively say uh, that this was, uh, that this was going the other way, which also begs the, the question. Now that you're changing legal, uh, legal representation, does that legal strategy change? Because, Potentially, they were winning that argument with the, with uh, the previous attorneys. So, um, yeah, I, I actually, you raise a good point, Neil. That might actually uh, 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 delay this a little further, and we may we may uh, get to trial. Yeah, I think we'll, we'll have to wait and see in, um, until the summary judgment uh, hearing is held. I, I, it seems unlikely that we would get a settlement before that. If Neil, if, right. as you say, they want to see how that goes, but you know that could be a bit of a fearing victory um, if they, if the Federation were to win um, and have the case dismissed, because that is not going to, that would not be the end of the case. And then you've got, you know, you've got (laughs) a lot of angry people out there, including sponsors, which again, you know, if, if Coke and Visa and BW start abandoning the Federation, uh, that's going to cause some serious, uh, serious issues. So I think that's a good place to end this. Uh, I want to thank uh, Neil and Kardik for uh, joining me on this uh, episode. There's a lot to discuss. Uh, I'll probably have them back on again before too long. But uh, Neil and Kardik, why don't you guys uh, let people know where they can find you online uh, and, and your work? Um, okay, so first, uh, I'll go first, uh, worldsoccertalk.com. 
uh, is where I do most of my writing, and obviously on Twitter at KKFLA737. I uh, also uh, uh, help Neil contribute uh, from time to time and, and want to contribute more. Now now we're going to have a lot of downtime, yes. right? <laughs> Yanksercoming.com and also have my personal site, thefloridasqueeze.com, which occasionally covers soccer. It's mostly political and, and history and, and kind of Florida stuff. But uh, obviously, through the years, we've covered the Orlando Pride uh, and Orlando City uh, extensively on that site. Yeah, I am um, at yanksercoming.com, the site I co-founded. That's where most of my U.S.-based national team coverage is going to be at uh, and, and some NWSL stuff um, with the Orlando Pride uh, in, in our Florida Soccer Stories category. I'm also the Club International de Football Fort Lauderdale beat writer for Last Word on Sport. And uh, see what I did there, Cardi? And Yeah, um, yes. <laughs> Uh, it, it, it was noticed right away. You didn't have to very good, very good. <laughs> say anything. So you can read me on uh, on Inter Miami um, at Last Word on Sport. Follow me on Twitter at NW Blackman. Thanks, guys, for joining me. We've got no shortage of things to discuss, even without a lot of soccer on the field to talk about. And we'll be back soon with another episode of the Soccer ESQ Podcast.